warning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day that you have given us. We give you thanks for each other and this opportunity to worship you. We come this morning, Lord, with our hearts overflowing with thankfulness and praise, both for who you are and all that you do for us. We also come with our hearts weighed down with many burdens. We come seeking love. We come seeking acceptance. We are searching for joy. We are searching for hope. We ask now, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would heal us, that you would transform our lives and give us that which you see that we need to keep moving forward. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is from the book, The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. My sermon title for today is actually the last phrase of verse number 15. Namely, at the beginning. At the beginning. The book of Acts was written by Luke. A physician by trade, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and the only Gentile author in the New Testament. Uh, he wrote Acts, we believe, sometime during the years A.D. 80 to 90. Acts is unique in that it is the only book of church history in the Bible. Luke, of course, authored the gospel which bears his name, offering an account of the life of Jesus the Christ and he authors Acts as a part two follow-up, if you will, of the lives of the earliest disciples after Jesus has ascended to heaven. Luke chronicles the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and the original twelve disciples outward to the Gentile world, largely through the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Today's text has been referred to as one of the two most important visions in the history of the Christian faith, particularly for determining the direction of growth for the early church in its infancy stage. The actual vision itself occurs in the previous chapter, chapter 10, but the Apostle Peter is recounting it and having to defend it here in chapter 11. The first and much more famous vision uh, initiates Paul's conversion during his Damascus Road experience, Located in chapter 9, Saul, the great enemy and persecutor of the early Christian church, will be blinded by a great light, knocked down to the ground, and have an encounter with Christ, which would result in his becoming the greatest advocate and proponent of the gospel and being essentially renamed Paul. In Peter's vision here in chapters 10 and 11, the result of which is the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius and his household, Peter would experience his own conversion of sorts as it pertained to the inclusion of Gentiles into this heretofore indigenous sect of Judaism. Peter states in verse 5, what had occurred in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, namely, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw 
of vision. Now, most of us are not inclined to trust visions that arise from trances in general, much less those that contradict hundreds of years of established teaching and doctrine. The original Greek word here translated trance is ecstasis, a strong word, according to one commentator, that strengthens the sense of an awe-inspiring revelation, from which, of course, we get our word today, ecstasy. So here's where you have to be careful. We all know that there are a thousand oddballs out there that will tell you about their trances and visions. They can seem seductive and beguiling, but lead to delusions at best and harmful cults at worst. And yet we have to acknowledge the profound revelatory nature of visions and dreams in our Judeo-Christian background. Where would we be, after all, without Jacob's dream of a ladder reaching into heaven at Bethel or Joseph's dream of prominence and vindication, which eventually saved his Hebrew family down in Egypt? What about God's granting King Solomon wisdom in a dream? Daniel's prophetic interpretations of King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams in Babylon? Or Joseph's being warmed in a dream to take Mary and the baby Jesus down to Egypt to escape King Herod's murderous wrath? Where would we be without Ezekiel's vision of the divine throne chariot and its wheel in the middle of a wheel? Or Zechariah's night visions? Or Habakkuk's exhortation to write down the vision on a tablet to make it plain for all to read? Think of the sustaining power of Joel's immortal vision of God's pouring out God's Spirit upon all flesh, men and women, rich and poor, young and old, such that old people shall dream dreams and young people shall see visions. Or Paul's vision of the third and the highest heaven where he saw things that may not be uttered. Or the beloved disciple John's vision, which serves as our second reading for today of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, a hope and a consummation which has sustained countless generations of the oppressed and persecuted faithful. And so Peter says today, I was praying and I fell into a trance and I saw a vision. And here's where it gets tricky. For hundreds of years now, Peter's and Jesus' Jewish community, out of which this new Christian movement is arising, has adhered to Levitical laws and teachings which counsels distinction between clean and unclean in many different ways, one of which is dietary. In Leviticus chapter 11, among others, it states quite clearly, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. Between the clean and the unclean. You are to make a distinction. Between the clean and the unclean. Between the living creature that may be eaten. And the living creature that may not be eaten. Such distinctions have served the chosen people of Israel well. For several centuries now. Preserving their unique identity as a covenanted people. To the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Such defining traits and characteristics are not meant to be easily dismissed or whimsically shrugged off because a simple unlettered fisherman has a vision one day likely inspired by the physical sensation of hunger aggravated by fasting. Peter has a vision of presumably unclean animals being lowered down from heaven on a sheet 
hears presumably a divine voice ordering him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He protests, No, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth and is told authoritatively what God has made clean you must not call common. If this actually concerned food and dietary laws or restrictions, it would be controversial and blasphemous and heretical enough. But Peter interprets it to actually apply to human beings, specifically Gentiles, that is all non-Jews, and sets off the greatest debate of early Christianity. Namely, are the Gentiles included with us Jews in this new Christian movement? And if so, on what grounds? And are they really, really equal to us in God's eyes? This vision is a radical shift and a fundamental break unlike anything heretofore in salvation history, my friends. His companions are justifiably caught off guard Skeptical and cynical. We've got the Torah and you've got a vision? We've got the accumulated God-given wisdom of an entire people over generations and you've got a trance? We've got thou shalt distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean, and you've got... What God has cleansed, we should not call profane, common, or unclean. We've got what's written down in the Bible as right and wrong. And you've got some voice that only spoke to you. An awful lot hinges on verse 12. The Spirit told me not to make a distinction between them and us, Jews and Gentiles. An awful lot rides on verse 17. If then God gave them the same gift that He gave us, who was I that I could hinder God or stand in God's way? The vision, the issue here, my friends, initially is food, but it quickly leads to people. The issue here can concern abstract notions. Of race or gender or culture or age or sexual orientation. But it quickly leads to real flesh and blood people. People with backgrounds and values and experiences and joys and pains. Out of which comes not only their understanding of who they are as individuals. Not only of who we are as a community of believers. But also of who God is. Who gives us visions of who we are together in the Holy Spirit. We know, we know, we know, we know, we know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. We know that there is now one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of us all, who's above all and in all and through all. We know that we are all baptized into one body, all made to drink of one spirit. And yet, when is the last time you looked at a white person, a black person, a Hispanic person, or an Asian person, and didn't make a snap judgment devoid of verse number 9? What God has cleansed, 
you must not call common. When is the last time you looked at a male or a female, a rich person or a poor person, a gay person or a straight person and possess certain preconceptions in your mind of their characters and their roles completely lacking of verse number nine? What God has cleansed, you must not call common. You see, we like that concept of cleansing and inclusion and embrace when it applies to us as Gentiles, when we are the beneficiaries. But when it comes to immigrants, for example, or any other often socially outcast group, we can be quick to say, well, you know, God's word says. The same way Peter's opponents continued to challenge him that this particular vision and even the Apostle Paul's ministry based upon God's word concerning circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath observances, etc., etc., etc. So how do we understand? How do we apply what God has cleansed? You and I must not insult, call common or profane. The main thing I caution against is embracing that cleansing when it applies to us and rejecting it out of hand when it applies to others. We cannot claim admission to God's grace apart from the law and bar others to the same because of that law. How does it affect our lives? If, as Peter claims in verse 34, the previous chapter, truly God shows no partiality. In closing, I would like to call your attention to one particular verse which really resonates with me personally and serves as a cautionary corrective in my own life. Verse 15 has Peter say, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. At the beginning. Most commentators take that phrase at the beginning to refer to the original day of Pentecost back in chapter 2, which we will commemorate and celebrate in about three weeks' time here. And I would agree. However, I think another broader understanding of the phrase at the beginning is at least possible, and for me anyway, provocative. What if the phrase at the beginning referred not to the disciples' collective reception of the Holy Spirit on that original Pentecost day of chapter 2, but instead of their own individual receptions of the divine Spirit born out of their own initial encounters with Jesus. What I'm getting at is this. In Luke chapter 5, Luke records Peter, that's who we're talking about today, Peter's initial encounter with Jesus, wherein Peter has fished all night long and caught absolutely nothing. And then at Jesus' instruction, he is told to put out into the deep at which point they caught a miraculous haul of fish so heavy such that their nets began to break and their load began to sink two boats. Peter's initial reaction when he beholds this 
is to fall on his knees in front of Jesus and cry out, and I quote, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter's response to Jesus at the beginning is one of humility and repentance and an overwhelming awareness of his own sinfulness. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. His protest in this text today and in this vision some three to four years later, after that initial encounter at the beginning, his protest, Lord, I have never touched anything common or unclean. Could be translated, I'm too holy to eat what's prohibited in Leviticus. And by extension, I'm too holy to embrace fellowship with Gentiles. What is sinful, what is unclean, goes from himself to someone or something else. Isn't it interesting that a little religion can be a dangerous thing? When God initially calls us, we're too sinful. But when he initially calls others, we're too holy. When Jesus performs a miracle in our lives, we're not worthy. But when he performs one in somebody else's life, they're not worthy. When we first encounter the divine, we are aware of our own sin. But later on, as we go on, we become aware of other folks. We start hanging out with Jesus. Start getting tight with God. And our views shifts. Our perspective changes. We begin to think we are worthy. We begin to think we deserve God's favor. We begin to get a little cocky and arrogant. After all, he chose us, right? The longer we're saved, the less humble we become. We become more like that Pharisee praying in the temple and less like that publican or tax collector. We become more like Caiaphas the high priest and less like little Zacchaeus up in that tree. We become more like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son and less like the younger brother. We become more like the priests and the Levites who pass by the wounded in another parable and less like the good Samaritan who actually stops to help out. Oh, but if we could go back to the beginning, back to when Jesus first called our names, first touched us with his healing power, first delivered us with his forgiving, reconciling ways. Take me back, dear Lord. An old gospel song yearns to when I first believed. I think if we went back to the beginning, we would be more critical of ourselves and less critical of others. More repentant ourselves and more patient and tolerant 
of others. More inclined to see and to take out the log that is in our own eye before ever commenting on the speck that is in someone else's eye. Oh, if we went back to the beginning of our own Acts 9, Damascus Road conversion experience, or our own Acts 10, Joppa rooftop conversion experience, we might recall that what God has cleansed, what God has cleansed is in fact us. And that therefore no one else can disparage us or insult us or call us common or profane or unclean. What we have in common, my brothers and sisters and my friends, with every other believer is that we are saved by God's grace through faith. We are all sinners, all cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Male, female, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, all sing together with gusto the truth. Red and yellow, black and white, we are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Not like somebody else. Like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. In the beginning, my friends, was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And that Word was Jesus. That Word was love. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the bright morning star. In the beginning, He loved us. He loved others and He gave us the power to love others. Does anyone in here have a vision right now? Is it a vision of God and of Jesus? Is it a vision of universal and unconditional love? Because if so, it matches that vision of heaven found in Revelation 7 where there appears a great multitude which nobody could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and all tongues cleansed by God's Word and the Lamb's blood all falling on their faces and worshiping God in song, singing blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and might, be to God and the Lamb forever. Amen. This is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia. 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 At the beginning, my friends. At the very beginning. Amen.